are listening to Historically, a show where we decolonize history and debunk myths taught in school and on corporate media. Unfortunately, last week, Elizabeth Warren took the bait and released the results of a DNA test. Because there is lots of misinformation on mainstream media and confusion, we have a special guest with us, Rebecca Nagel, who is a journalist, author, and activist, and also a citizen of the Cherokee Nation. Thank you for joining us, Rebecca. Definitely, white people pretending to be Cherokee ha- just goes back to when they were trying to make their claim in our homelands before removal. It's a very long history that I think is good for people to know. Name some of the things that problematic that white people say to you. Um, explain what they should do instead, etiquette-wise. I would say 98% of the time that I interact with somebody who's non-Native, I get some version of people asking me what part Cherokee I am. And so sometimes people ask it to my face or they'll, um, people I think who are aware enough to know that that direct of a question is kind of rude. They'll sort of in a backdoor way, try and figure out the math. So they'll say things like, well, who in your family is Cherokee? And I'll say, you know, my grandma. And they'll be like, okay, well, so was she full blood? Like what, what was her blood quantum? So they'll be like, we're both your grandma's Cherokee. Oh, it's, I experience that every day. And I think what it's important for people to, who are non-Native to understand is that Native identity is not a racial group, but it's a political category. I'm a citizen of a tribe whose existence predates the creation of the United States. Every tribe determines who is a citizen and who is not. I think what we've seen this debate bring up is the entitlement with which people who are not Native and who are not citizens of those tribes feel like they have have over Native identity, which is extremely problematic. And, and for me, I, I think it's ironic that often the same people who rush to defend Warren, it's almost always the same people, will question me and challenge me because I don't fit the stereotype of what they think a Native person should look like. I witnessed this five minutes ago on Twitter. Some Elizabeth Warren fan spewing inaccuracies about the Cherokee Nation. And I told them to follow you, but But that person replied by saying, oh, I want a real Native American. Here is an excerpt from the advertisement where Elizabeth Warren took the DNA test. In this excerpt, she is talking to Dr. Bustamante, who also owns a corporation on genetic testing and is a professor at Stanford. Hi, this is Elizabeth Warren. Is Dr. Bustamante in, please? 
Hi, I'm Carlos Bustamante, and I've advised companies in the direct-to-consumer space, including Ancestry.com, 23andMe, and Helix. In the Senator's genome, we did find five segments of Native American ancestry with very high confidence, where we believe the error rate is less than one in a thousand. Now, the president likes to call my mom a liar. What do the facts say? The facts suggest that you absolutely have a Native American ancestor in your pedigree. Yeah, I'm not an expert scientist, but I actually wrote an article that gets into this with more detail for Think Progress and had the help of Kim Tallbear, who is an excellent scholar on genetics and DNA and native identity. Um, I really recommend that people check out her writing. But basically, you know, the scientists that did Warren's DNA test took samples from people in Mexico, Peru, and Colombia, I believe. And it looks like based on the science that she has an ancestor who was maybe indigenous to Central, North, or South America six to ten generations ago. What's problematic about using that to claim any relationship to a tribe, North, Central, and South America is a pretty big place. And to say that all indigenous people that stretch from, you know, modern-day Alaska to modern-day Chile can be easily categorized by science is pretty ridiculous. I think that, you know, if scientists did the same thing and say, you know, had a DNA test that grouped everyone from England to Tokyo, people wouldn't take it seriously because the way that whiteness has always been defined as separate and the way that indigenous identity in the Americas has always been flattened. I think the other thing that is kind of gets maybe beyond a lot of people's understanding of native identity and how it works, but I think is worth mentioning, this particular scientist body of research about genetics is based a lot on the Bering Strait myth and sort of ideas of migration. So the reason that like some an indigenous person from Colombia's DNA would be in, in any way relevant or, you know, warrant to say that she's Cherokee is this idea that all native people who are native to the Americas came over on the Bering Strait and we're all related. This is really insulting to a lot of tribal communities because we have our own history. We know where we came from. And I don't know every, you know, native tribe's story, but the ones that I do know is that we are deeply connected to this, that we were kicked out of by white people. And there's been a lot of science that's actually disproven the Bering Strait theory that is really good to look into. Indian Country Today actually has like a whole series about it. And every time it comes up, it's buried. I think it's important for people to know. I think one of the things that's so hard about this is that sort of the layers of racism and erasure of Native identity like go so deep and it's so deeply embedded that it's like even when you start to piece apart the science it's the science is based on the same thinking and and one other thing that I'll add and then I'll, I'll stop because I know this is a lot of information you know native tribes have a very troubled and ethically fraught history with the whole idea of race-based genetics you know the Havasupai tribe in Arizona actually had to sue Arizona State University to get them to stop using biospecimens that the tribe had shared with the university to study diabetes when the university started using it to do this sort of like genetics migration research. And the reason that they objected to that is because that tribe has their own creation stories and they know where they came from. And it's an affront to tribal identity for scientists to try and prove that our own indigenous knowledge is wrong. 
for people to understand the danger of the land grab, we need to go back to the beginning. What is the doctrine of discovery? The doctrine of discovery is a series of, it's not really one document, but it's a series of papal bulls that the Catholic Church issued and then were later adopted by different monarchies like the England and things like that, that said that any time that Christian nations encountered non-Christian people, they had the right to discover and take that land. It was used to colonize Africa and to start the transatlantic slave trade. It was issued around the time that Columbus colonized the land of the Taino people um, and what he named Hispaniola. It sounds sort of like, okay, you know, that started in the 1400s. It's super racist. What does it have to do today? Well, thanks to a Supreme Court case in the 18, I believe it was in the 1830s, the Supreme Court basically turned the doctrine of discovery into the basis of U.S. federal Indian law. You know, as the colonies were being created and they were still under English government, this doctrine of discovery was what gave them the right to claim land that other people were already living on. And then as the United States formed, the legal theory is that it inherited the crown's right to that land. Um, It was transferred to the United States, you know, with the Declaration of Independence and all that stuff. Legally today, as Native Americans, we are legally not owners of our tribal land, but occupants. And it's land that's held for us in trust by the federal government. What does this mean? And what is tribal sovereignty? I think what's the laws around tribal land are really complicated because there are 573 federally recognized tribes. And our history of our land is really tribally specific. Some tribes have reservations. A lot of tribes don't. A lot of tribes went through allotment, you know, like Osage Reservation went through allotment, but they still own the mineral rights. So they own all of the resources that are under their lands. And so there are a lot of unique circumstances when it comes to land rights in Indian country. And the other thing I would say about, you know, federal Indian policy and the racist construction that it is. And and this is kind of a side point, but I've seen a lot of people on social media, you know, saying that the Dodds rules were so racist, the way that they were created is so wrong. And, you know, the whole idea of federally recognized tribe is a colonial construct anyway. So why are we talking about this? And I think it's really important for non-Native people, especially to understand is that as Native people, when we say tribal sovereignty, that is synonymous with Native rights. You don't have Native rights in the United States without tribal sovereignty. And if you look at any issue, whether it's about pipelines, the environment, you know, keeping our children away from predatory adoption, like stopping the extremely high rates of violence against women, when it goes back to policy, it's all policy that strengthens the self-government and the jurisdiction of those tribes. And so it's a flawed system. Of course, it's impacted by colonization. Like we didn't have this type of self-governance before white people showed up on this continent, but it's also the only thing that's kind of keeping us from the abyss, you know, like it is what guards the land that we have left. And so before people criticize it, people need to understand what it does do today that's still important. 
Um, let me just read out um, something from the 1866 Cherokee Constitution, just so that people understand. All native-born Cherokees, all Indians and whites legally members of the nation by adoption, and all freedmen, as well as free colored persons who were in the country at the commencement of the rebellion and are now residents therein, shall be taken and deemed to be citizens of the Cherokee Nation. Yep. And I think that that's one thing that's really important for people to understand when we talk about it's not about citizenship, it's about race. I think that the Cherokee Nation is actually a really good example of that. And so, um, and I don't say the following statement to belittle the um, very real history of our tribe disenfranchising and trying to kick out the descendants of the freedmen. Um, But the descendants of the freedmen are citizens of our tribe now and have a long, long history, like that statement shows, of being parts of our tribe. And that wasn't because of a DNA test. It was because of their political history with our tribe and their political status as Cherokee Nation citizens. You also mentioned the Dawes role, and most people don't know what it is. Can you explain what it is? Yeah, so what happened, um, it was a process that really started in the 1890s, but it commenced in the official documents are from the early 1900s. But after, um, I think what's important to understand is that after, you know, the era of um, when we see a lot of mass massacres, so like Wounded Knee um, and Native people being rounded up and forced onto reservations, which in their early forms were really concentration and work camps. Um, that period of time, it the government made a conscious decision to transition out of military conflict to what we call assimilation policies. And so then what we see are all of these policies that aren't meant to kill the Indian with a gun, but to still um, make there be less Indians in the United States and to further open up Indian land for white settlement. And so what happened to the Cherokee Nation, Creek Nation, Choctaw Nation, Chickasaw Nation, and the Seminoles is that um, we had an area um, that's about half the state of Oklahoma that was called Indian Territory. Um, And the federal government wanted to divide that land up, um, dissolve our governments. There would no longer be any Cherokee nation and Cherokee people each got, you know, a certain amount of acreage. Um, you know, Cherokee nation fought this, all of the tribes fought it. And even after the tribal governments kind of acquiesced and gave in, um, individual people fought it. Um, so there was, um, Cherokees that uh, protested the allotment, refused to participate, that were actually jailed, including a really um, important spiritual leader within Cherokee Nation um, named Redbird Smith. And so, um, yeah, so basically what happened is the commission came to Oklahoma and they took a census of every Cherokee Nation citizen. And then those people got parcels of land. Um, And that... So, and our government was dissolved and we didn't have our own system of self-governance again until the seventies. And when we reestablished our constitution and our nation in the 1970s, um, and we also went through, we wrote a new constitution in the nineties too, but um, we have used 
since that time, we have used the DAWs roles as to determine our citizenship. And so if you are a direct descendant of somebody who's on the DAWs roles, you can enroll in the tribe. Um, and I think what's important is that um, a lot of people have these sort of rumors that, um, you know, their ancestors didn't sign up. And I think a lot of it is in this kind of um, vein that, you know, their ancestors didn't want to get the handouts like all the Indians and Native people got these handouts, but their ancestors didn't, um, which I think is really condescending. But when you look at the actual historical records, what happened, like I said is people who are trying to um, not sign up for the DAWs roles because they viewed it as theft and assimilation and didn't want to participate at all were not only thrown in jail but what would happen is the commission would go out and in the small communities like talk to people's neighbors like get enough information and people were signed up without their knowledge like people were given land that they didn't even know about um, and the other thing that happened is that thousands thousands, thousands of white people poured into Indian territory and um, pretended to be Indian. And the federal government actually wasn't dealing with this crisis. And so the tribes, not the federal government, the tribes had to take those people to court um, to get them kicked off the rolls because there was so much white theft. And so for people to say, like, my family just escaped the Dawes rolls, it's pretty ridiculous given the historical record. Um, there are people, I mean, it's, it's not that there are zero exceptions. There are people who were on the DAWs rolls for different reasons. Um, it's extremely rare. And the other thing that's true about those people is, you know, like uh, Cherokee people follow patterns of basic biology, um, like every other human. And so it's like, if you have one person who's not on the DAWs rolls, most often that person's parents or that person's uncle or that person's sibling or that person's cousin is on the Dawes rolls because their whole family was Cherokee. And so for people to have no documented connection to the tribe just doesn't match history and doesn't match even basic biology and how human procreation works. I, I'm glad I muted my mic when you said that um, if their family didn't get the handout. Um, if people were to look at the map, the original Cherokee nation was North Carolina, South Carolina, Kentucky, Tennessee, Georgia, and parts of Florida. So that's what was stolen. Yeah. And then when we came to Oklahoma, it was, um, we, our, our territory was um, basically like a quarter of the size of present day Oklahoma. And so that was taken then too. And this is, I mean, this is, again, is getting into um, like an issue where I'm going to have to give a lot of detail, but, um, but we're still losing land. So we're still under the, so the system of allotment said um, like land that was owned by a native person is still technically Indian country. So it's still technically under the jurisdiction of the tribe. It's still technically jur jurisdiction but every time that land passed out of that not that Cherokee family into a non-native home or it could even just go to like the hands of somebody else who's Cherokee but it didn't stay in that exact family it becomes like Oklahoma land it becomes like all other land in the United States it's no longer under the jurisdiction of the tribe it's no longer Indian territory the other time
time that that happens, it's any time the title holder to the land is half blood quantum or less. And so almost all of the land that was allotted to Cherokee families, even land that those families still own, is not still considered under the jurisdiction of the tribe. And so if you look at like Cherokee Nation land and a map, and you know, it's like our real estate office within our tribe has it because they have to keep track of it. Um, it's just this, it's this huge map of what our jurisdictional borders were before allotment. And then these like little red squares everywhere. Where they were. Thank you for listening to part one of our interview with Rebecca Nagel. Remember, we are supported by people like you. In order to become a patron, just go to http colon slash slash www.patreon.com slash historically. And now we continue with the show. But before we start, can we talk about what happened to create the Indian Child Welfare Act, and then what the Indian Child Welfare Act is now. In the 50s and 60s, there was a system of predatory adoption where a third of Native kids were being adopted out of homes and raised by non-Native families. In uh, 1978, Congress passed the Indian Child Welfare Act. And what happens is when an Indian child is up for adoption, they are prioritized to be placed with either a family member, so it could be like an extended family member, like aunt, grandma, grandpa, another tribal member. And if those two options aren't available, then another Native home. has been praised as the gold standard in uh, child welfare. All kids, no matter who they are, have better outcomes if they're raised by community members, by family members, um, and if they have those connections than being in like foster care or state child welfare systems. What's happened is that far-right organizations like the Goldwater Institute, which is funded by the Mercer family and the Koch brothers, have decided that ICWA is a place that federal Indian law is vulnerable and that they can attack ICWA in sort of a long-term strategy to undo all of federal Indian law. And so before when I talked about how tribal sovereignty is the thing that keeps Native people from the abyss and that it is what it is the legal tool that we have to assert our rights, that is what they're trying to undo. They're trying to obliterate it. And so they've been making this argument in the courts and they bring the Goldwater Institute because it's so well-funded, you know, they They have these far-right fringe legal arguments that don't match the Constitution, that have no precedent, that really should just get thrown out, and 98% of the time they do, but they have the resources just consistently and constantly and always bring the case. And so that's what the Goldwater Institute has been doing really for the past five years, and they finally found a judge in northern Texas that agrees with them. And so earlier this month, um, this judge, O'Connor, he's a Republican appointee in the northern um, U.S. District federal court in Texas ruled that ICWA is unconstitutional because Native Americans are a race and not a political group. And that goes back to kind of all of the mess that this conversation about DNA tests has created is that 
I think to the average American, they don't understand that distinction. They don't understand the difference between being a citizen of a tribe and being a racial group or a homogenous group. Because of that lack of understanding, it's an effective argument for far-right groups to make because it's there's not enough public education for it to be matched with public or met with public outrage. That's why ICWA is important. And another context that is good for people to know is that even with ICWA in place, Native kids are still adopted out of their homes and their families at disproportionate rate. And it's in particularly in certain states, in the Dakotas, in Minnesota, and Alaska, you will see, you know, like Native kids be about 20% of the population in Alaska. And then when you look at how many Native kids are in the foster care system, it's about 60%. We're still dealing with this crisis and our one legal tool to really keep our kids with our families and in our communities is being compromised. So the Cherokee Secretary of State said Elizabeth Warren is undermining tribal interests with their continued climbs of tribal heritage. Is there anything more that can go into this that we might not be aware of? Yeah, I think that's a really good question. I would go back to ICWA, that ICWA case. So the case I talked about, I think it's called the Burkines versus Zinke. And yep, it's Burkine versus Zinke. Zinke, the Secretary of Interior for people who don't know. Yeah, so they're, they're suing the federal government, and his name is what goes on it, but they're basically just suing the government. Um, and it's a white family in northern Texas that actually already successfully adopted a child that is both Cherokee and Navajo, even though Navajo Nation had a Navajo home that was like open and willing to take the kid. Um, and it's also frustrating because what happens in all these cases is that white parents volunteer to be foster parents, which is by definition a temporary role in a child's life. And that's what you're agreeing to do. And then they'll sue to have parental rights based on their status as foster parents, just as an aside. Cherokee Nation, um, you know, it's a Cherokee Nation child. It's a um, case that Cherokee Nation has appealed. And so we have a legal interest in not just this case, but all of the implications that it has on the future of ICWA and the future of tribal sovereignty. And so, again, the non-Native public taking this sort of having concluding from the current media craziness that Native people are a homogenous racial category is problematic. And and one thing I want to say is that, you know, Elizabeth Warren pays lip service to tribal sovereignty, you know, and and it's really, she's only been doing that for less than a year if you look at her, if if you've been following this issue. But, you know, she knows now that she needs to make that distinction. But I think that she also knows that there's enough public confusion about tribal identity that people will take this DNA test as strong evidence that she has Cherokee heritage, which is if you understand the science and you also understand tribal identity is completely absurd and just wrong. The other thing that I think is important for people to understand about Cherokee Nation is that, and Cherokee identity specifically, is that we're the tribe that everybody who, or almost everybody who imagines themselves to be Native claims. Right now in the United States, there are over 400 different groups that claim to be Cherokee. So like from the Northern Cherokee and Missouri to, you know, I mean, 
the list just goes on and on. Almost in every state, there is a Cherokee group. Some, I think about a dozen have gotten state recognition. Most have no legal recognition at all. I mean, a lot of them have like an entrance fee. So like if you pay them $100, you can like join basically this club and say that you're Cherokee. Um, also, um, on the U.S. Census, I think about 820,000 people self-identified on the census that they're Cherokee. In total, between the three federally recognized Cherokee tribes, we have about 400,000 citizens. Twice as many people in the U.S. think that they're Cherokee than are a citizen of one of our tribes. And, and these people, their actions aren't innocent. They do things like they sell our crafts and they sell our art for money. There's a scandal going on right now in L.A. where the Republican majority speaker, I think it's of their house, but a person who's high up within the state legislature, his brother-in-law got $7 million in no-bid contracts as a minority based on his membership in one of these fake Cherokee groups. Those people are taking resources that belong to Native people and using these types of false claims to prop it up. And you can, if you Google Northern Cherokee, they've actually, they've done tests with their DNA. They're really wacky. Like they have all these theories that Cherokee people are actually like the lost tribe of Israel. So like with DNA testing, they've actually tried to like link themselves to Jewish people. Like it's, it's like when you watch it, it's just like bizarre and crazy. So they're already a group that's sort of like using DNA testing and using genetic markers to try and prop up their bizarre theories to support their identity theft. And so I think like somebody who is as powerful and is as prominent as Elizabeth Warren, who is like a U.S. senator that wants to be president, supporting the idea that identity theft is a way to claim native identity is really harmful. And like, and Warren might not be asking for an economic handout based on the results of her DNA test. I shouldn't use the word handout. Like Warren should not, isn't asking for the resources that are rightfully set aside for native people based on the results of her DNA test. But other people are. Like another example is there's a man in Seattle. He lives like in the suburbs of Seattle and he is suing the state of Washington for status as a minority business owner based on the results of his DNA test. And he tested as 6% indigenous and 4% African descent. And so it's not, it's, it's a contemporary issue with a bleak future that I think we all have to guard against because there are these the U.S. has a history of turning myths about Native identity into federal policy in a way that's harmful for tribes. And I think what Cherokee, Cherokee Nation sees and understands that, and I think that's why the tribe and, you know, our Secretary of State, Chuck Hoskins, made that statement. Oh, wow. Um, I'm just flabbergasted. And yeah, people should not think of it as handout as much as a little bit of maybe compensation for everything they stole. Well, I, guess, I mean, it's a signed agreement. Like it was, you know, I always say like when people complain about us getting free healthcare, I'm like, okay, like give us back our land. Like I will take the entire state of Tennessee for like our one hospital, you know, like that's a fair trade. <laughs> 
Yeah, yeah, I agree. No, I mean, that, that, no, because then they also need to do the compensation for the genocide. Yeah, and so it's like, like we, you know, we sign treaties with the Cherokee Nation, and all like in those treaties, the terms of those treaties were that in exchange for the land that we were giving, a, you know, the growing country of the United States that wanted and needed more land was that we, you know, oftentimes would get food, healthcare, education, and then other land, like our land in Oklahoma. And so it's not based on even it's not even based on the idea of that we should be paid something based on what was taken from us it's based like the whole legal structure of like Indian Health Services of Bureau of Indian Education Schools the entire like legal structure for that is based on our treaty right that's an important thing for people to know and think of as a distinction but it's one of the most pervasive stereotypes about Native people is that we get um, there's actually this really great report called Reclaiming Native Truth that just came out in July. And they just were, you know, going around and seeing what like non-Native people think about Native people. And one of the most pervasive negative myths was that we get all this free stuff that other people don't get. And it was also like had a lot of negative things around like casino money. And I think that's one of the things that's really messed up about Warren's claims. Like, you know, she says, almost on repeat, like, I didn't get into Harvard, you know, I didn't advance my career by saying that I was Native, I never got a leg up because of it, like, I just got it based on my credentials. And I think what is inferred by that statement, or what is implied by that statement, is that actual Native people who check the Native box, like, somehow did get a leg up just because they were Native and weren't hired based on their credentials, like, that's really messed up. And that doesn't just apply to Native people, but I think the implication goes to all people of color. And so just, she just keeps tripping into these holes of like racist stereotypes that the right has said, you know, that, and she just keeps reaffirming them, I think, without maybe thinking about it or without being self-aware, but it's still extremely problematic. Um, for the record, just so you know, um, in the 1995 Harvard um, faculty brochure, she ref referred to herself as Elizabeth Warren, comma, Cherokee. In 1984, there were two textbooks, two cooking books where she had random recipes and said Elizabeth Warren, comma, Cherokee. And in the 1999 Fordham Law Review, again, they referred to her as Elizabeth Warren, comma, Cherokee. And the main problem is that Harvard is an extremely racist place. They believe they have one, they, they ticked off that box. They're just not going to want to hire uh, another person who has actually grown up with the, uh, within the nation, who's familiar with the way the laws are and how it interacts with the youth. So they're just like robbing themselves of an expert and that's where it's problematic. But for anyone who claims that she never did that, it's false, she did. Yeah, and I think that it's um, like, it goes even deeper because at the time that Warren got tenure at Harvard, the law school was getting a lot of heat because they had never in their entire history hired a woman of color. And they actually didn't until I think like 1997. So I think about four years after Warren got hired and um, reporters and the Boston Globe has done a little bit of reporting about this, but reporters looked at their internal documents and in their internal documents, when they talked about not having women of color, cause they were, I mean, people were protesting them. Like there was a lot, a lot of students of color were really upset about it. Um, in their internal documents, they, 
consistently float Warren as like the reason that they're doing great. And so, you know, it's like how institutions set those goals of like this percentage of our faculty will be people of color by this time, you know, in their internal documents, they talk about how like they're, they're hitting their goals and using Warren to count towards that. Like she took the place that belonged to a woman of color. Uh, Like the more I hear about it, the more I get enraged. Yeah. I've been a ball of fire all week. The deeper you get into it, the more it's just like, you feel like your head is going to explode, you know? And you keep getting away with it. Like, it's crazy. And and I'm not even, like, a member of the First Nation, and my head feels like it's going to explode just based on, like, what they stole. Um, And, oh, my God. And and the fact that they're still trying to take more of your, like, how much is enough for white people? Yeah, and I think what's important for people to know right now is, um, yeah, there is, like, you know, Trump's uh, advisory committee on Native affairs suggested privatizing all remaining Native land. Um, You know, there are... if you look at the proportion of um, native land to the proportion of um, natural resources that are on those lands, um, it's uh, a really strong indication of why people are interested in taking our land from us. So native people, um, so we have 2% of all land in the United States and that land at holds an estimate of 20% of all oil and gas reserves, 50% of uranium reserves, and 30% of all coal west of the Mississippi. And so in 2009, the Council of Energy Resource Tribes estimated energy resources on tribal land were worth about $1.5 trillion. And so right now, like tribal sovereignty makes it so that those resources can't be extracted without the consent of the tribe. But if you can get rid of tribal sovereignty, then it's all open for grabs. Uh, uh, the Trump administration is trying to do like an all-out assault like what they did in Utah. And so legal, like for activists, what can, how, how can they be aware of what they're doing and how do they protest it? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, I think first of all, like just diversifying where you get your news from, like who you're following on Twitter, Um, you know, Indians.com and Indian Country Media Today pretty much follow all of the breaking stories as it relates to like these types of legal issues that I'm talking about and native rights. And so, you know, when court cases like the one in Texas happen, it's almost always only native people who are are talking about it. And so if we can get other people just aware, that's really helpful. Um, and, you know, issues that are going on right now that people can participate in, um, man, there's so much. <laughs> but I, I think I think the biggest thing is, um, and I hate saying this because normally on issues, but I'm like, all right, screw public education. Like, we just need to focus on policy. Um, but... I actually feel like with Native people, every time we go and we try and work on policy, we hit this wall, just sort of this brick wall of public ignorance. And if people can help us just like brick by brick dismantle that wall, um, it would go a long way. Well, listening to our podcast, one of our main goals is to decolonize our history and debunk corporate myths. So, sorry to plug my podcast here. (laughs) 
Um, but yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and, and, I, and to me, another thing I heard, like it seems like a global trend because in Brazil, Bolsonaro is saying the same thing about the indigenous. Yeah, yeah, it's an international problem. And it's, you know, I think the um, history is the most parallel in countries that we call settler colonial, um, where the indigenous where um, white people sought to not just, you know, um, reap resources from a country and, you know, do different things like that, but actually to move in and replace the indigenous population. There's this extreme parallel of issues, whether you're talking about Australia or New Zealand or Canada or the United States, but globally, indigenous people everywhere um, our rights are being attacked. And I think especially at a time when we're talking about climate change, you know, indigenous rights are synonymous with um, environmental rights and you can't do one without the other. And so, um, yeah. And so it's, it's not just happening in the United States. And I, and I think that, um, yeah, I'll just leave it at that. Okay. Um, so, um, and if people want to learn more about you or the Cherokee Nation, where would they find in that information? Oh, well, people can follow me at Twitter. I'm at Rebecca Nagel. Um, and, uh, you know, Cherokee Nation, we have actually a tribal newspaper uh, that people can follow. One of my uh, family members, one of my ancestors actually helped start it. And it's the longest running um, native newspaper in the country. It's called the Cherokee Phoenix. And so, um, yeah, just adding that to the list of stuff that you read um, can keep you updated about what's going on with the tribe. Okay, um, so uh, like I did an earlier like review of like American history textbooks, and each of them are just like horrible. Like, yeah, I know. What can people do to get better like education in history in American public schools? I think there are people who are doing that work on a state level right now that are that's good, um, and so that definitely needs to happen. But you know, like one fact is that of all um, of all the states, only four have in their curriculum the history of boarding schools, which is a very significant federal policy that really impacted Indian communities, but is not taught in uh, 46 of the 50 states. Another factoid is like, I think only 13% of state standard curriculum about Native history is about events that happened after the 1900s. And so one thing I would really tell people to do in their own personal education and then, you know, in fighting for a better education generally is learn about our history after the year 1900. Like we didn't disappear after 1890. And I think the way that we are historicized and relegated to the past um, makes it extremely hard for us to advocate for our rights. You know, the way that I talk about it is that like anytime I talk to a non-Native person about Native issues, it would be like if as a feminist, I'm talking to people and their, their last reference point for feminism was the suffragettes mo- movement. And they're like, yeah, it's so terrible that like you can't vote, you know? Like, I was just like, ah, oh, that was a long time ago. And, you know, there are like other issues that are important to feminists now. But, you know, people, you know, whether they're like asking you if you lived on a reservation or they're like, oh, you know, what happened to you was so terrible. And they're, they're referencing what happened in like the 1880s and the 1890s, you know. 
And so I think really focusing on that history that's not told is really important. And some books that I would recommend, um, I think that, um, so there's, if you want to know more about the history of white people pretending to be Native, um, there's a really good book by Philip Deloria called Plain Indian um, that takes you all the way back to um, white people dressing up like uh, Indians for the Boston Tea Party. And I think the thesis of the book, I think, is really important for people to understand. White people claiming some part of Native identity and culture has always been part of the United States, and it's how America, how white people in America have like created a sense of identity in a land where they're foreign and that they got through theft. Um, and so I think that the, the book lays it out with a lot of historic examples and it's an important thing for people to understand. Another really good historian is um, Angie DeBeau. And I think especially for people, because I think this, this topic has brought up a lot of questions about the Dawes rolls. She wrote a book about and still the Waters Run, which is about um, what the federal government did during the allotment process. It's, I think, something that everybody should read. Yeah, that's that's what comes to my mind right now. Um, and then I think also just sort of following those contemporary Native American voices who are talking about news and current issues so that um, people can educate themselves about that too. And Native, Ameri Native issues are um, uniquely bipartisan, which, and I hope that it stays that way because I think that it really works in our favor. So like right now, a lot of, the legislation that's been introduced to um, combat violence against women um, is coast. Almost every bill is co-sponsored by Republicans and Democrats. Uh, it doesn't mean that it still won't have an uphill battle to pass, but you see um, senators in red states where they need the support of tribes um, championing Native issues. So, like Senator Mikowski in Alaska is a good example, um, and a lot of Indian country is in like rural and or conservative parts of the country. So I know, you know, like Chickasaw Nation, um, they have a representative, Tom Cole, who's a Republican. Our congressman right here, Mark Wayne Muller, is a citizen of Cherokee Nation. Um, although he's he can he's also pretty unpopular with a lot of Cherokees because he's voted against tribal sovereignty many times. Um, so, yeah, I, I think one thing that's good for people to know, though, is that the current administration of Cherokee Nation is very Democrat. Um, and so them coming out to talk about Warren is them parting with their, um, their local party. They're very closely connected to the local Democratic Party. Um, and also, I mean, I think overall, I, I, I'm not positive, but I think overall Native people tend to vote Democrat, um, you know, mostly voted for Clinton and things like that, and are also Democrats in some key states like North Dakota, where, you know, they are really important to things like um, Heidi Heitkamp's re-election, and the vote there is currently being um, repressed. And so, um, 
Yeah, but it's definitely, we can't, I don't think we can be whittled down to one political category. And I think it's because also, I mean, I think liberals like to think of themselves as sort of like the great champions of, you know, everyone's rights. But, you know, the Democratic Party in large parts was started by Andrew Jackson. Like there are moments that the Democratic Party fails Native people. And so there are a lot of people who are conservative. Like I know a lot of Cherokee families that just because of Andrew Jackson will not register as Democrat. They might vote for a Democrat in an election, but they will not register with the party. And so I think if the Democrats misstep on this Warren issue, um, it'll reinforce that for people. Well, um, thank you so much for being on. Do you have any last remarks that you want to say before, like, uh, that anything we forgot, skipped, or anything like Just that? Just one thing in that, um, I think one thing that's for people one of the pieces of history that's important for people to understand in this moment with Elizabeth Warren is that Cherokee people are really well documented. And so when people claim to have a Cherokee ancestor, um, and it's a legitimate claim, we can go and we can find that person. Um, so there were 45 different roles taken of Cherokees between about the year 1870 to the year 1914. And, um, you know, from a census that was taken of all the Cherokees living in our homelands before removal, you know, there's a role of everyone who traveled the Trail of Tears and their daily rations. There's a, you know, the Dawes rolls, which we talked about more extensively. And I think that because we're native and we're seen as primitive or as simple or somehow as like less sophisticated than white people, there's this stereotype that we don't have those records. Um, and quite the opposite is true and so that is part of why Cherokee people when someone claims to be Cherokee can speak with authority as to whether they are or not just sort of like royalty can do that because we have you know extremely detailed records of royalty you know Cherokees are actually kind of right up there in terms of being one of the most well-documented groups of people in history Thank you for listening to Historically I hope you enjoyed the show So here's the truth about the system <laughs>